one, uh, one of the things I loved about seminary was there was this thing we did called Friday night at the institutes. The institutes were the, uh, the um, Francis Schaeffer Institute, and uh, if you know anything about that. But basically it was this, that we'd gather in like a local coffee shop or bookstores when they used to have those things called bookstores, and they were kind of like random TED Talks. Um, and they were a little bit like events that would uh, take a deep dive into some ethical or theological or social issue from a biblical perspective. And it was open to the public, and um, one week one of my professors was speaking, and I was there. I actually don't even remember what he was speaking on. I'm sure it was incredible. Um, an assortment of random students and passers-by who were just in the bookstore ended up kind of just getting together. There's probably 20 seats uh, out there. And, uh, and about 30 minutes in, he was finished with his lecture, and uh, it was open for Q&A. Now, I need to describe a little bit about this professor. Um, this professor has a shaved head, and a really um, uh, wide, um, wide cheekbones and, and a really kind of a severe um, uh, goatee. Um, and he is completely ripped. I'm serious. He's a professor that's completely ripped. I know, I know. No, sorry, professors. Um, and before he was a theology professor, he was actually an operations platoon leader for Special Ops, 11 Bravo, so he was, he was a really tough dude. And he was a Yankee, and he was a little bit gruff. So when Q&A came around, a person was enraged. And she said, your talk was fine, but you kept referring to God as a father. I can't even stomach that you would say such a thing. If you knew the utter abuse that I and others have received, endured because of fathers, you would never compare a loving God to a father. Great first Q&A statement. We'll get back to how he responded in a bit. But fatherhood, both having one, being one, whether biological for many of you, or a father figure, or adoptive. Y'all know there's a thing called daddy issues, right? It's important to understand, to get our minds and hearts wrapped around God calling himself father. And daddy issues is not a new phenomenon. From uh, Sophocles' Oedipus to Sylvia Plath's daddy, if you've ever read, read that. We all have experience of bad fathering, whether father or father figure, and really good fathering. Some of you had amazing fathers, truly. To this day, my wife knows that she could call up Emery Lee Carver at any minute, and if she said, come, however it long takes to get him in his truck and to her is how long it'll take for him to be there. To this day, no questions asked. Almost happened one time when we were on a date, too, so uh, that was a... Uh, it's all her fault, I'm sure. Um, most of us, though, have had fathers or not had fathers that were a mixture of absence and presence, of love and dysfunction, of joy and pain. And so we, today we enter this breathtaking passage about God as our father and us as his children. But like last week, it starts so importantly with an understanding of the spirit, or the spirits, I should say, there are three spirits that are involved here. We'll start with 15. We'll get back to 14. 
but there are two in 14, and they contrast each other, spirits in verse 15, of slavery and of adoption, or of sonship, depending on your translation. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but the spirit of sonship, or adoption, as sons. Often when we talk about the opposite of adoption, we speak of either abandonment or something like that. But this is beyond abandoned. It's, it's actually enslaved, which is a weird metaphor to juxtapose with one another. Now, to be fair, in Galatians, it talks about, um, uh, uh, it talks about being orphans and, um, and, and adopted children. But this metaphor is kind of amped up. An absence of a father would be better than the presence of a slave master. Right? God is saying that what's at stake is not whether you're experiencing just an abandonment or an absence of me, but whether you experience me as someone who has held you captive under fear. Both abandonment and slavery and fear, they're wrapped up. I was reading a lot about fatherhood this week, and Elton John has an, uh, uh, an article, as, um, an interview, and he says this, I was afraid of my father. I walked on eggshells the whole time, my entire life, trying to get his approval. He's been dead for a long time, and to this day, I'm still trying to prove things to him. Elton John's father died in 97 without ever seeing him perform live. The times that his father touched him most were when he was beating him. He says, my mom always says, that's just the way we did it in those days, and it didn't affect you. <laughs> Elton says, what are you talking about? In a cooler British voice, right? What are you talking about? It affects everything I do every day. Know this, if your experience of God is walking around on eggshells, if you are a Christian and feel enslaved to him in some way that you have to win his approval and it ends in fear, this is not breathing the fresh, clean air of the gospel. This is not what is true of you or of him. Because as we keep reading, we hear this, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. You have received something different than this slavery and fear, but the adoption as sons. Now, the legal act of adoption was not um, practiced by Jews. Like in many communities around the world and in our own country, if you could, you just looked after the kids of the family. But in Roman culture, in the Greco-Roman practice of the first century, a man could formally confer on a child all the legal rights of birth. The paterfamilias would come in and deliberately choose to be an adoptive father, to perpetuate his name and his inheritance and his estate. The adopted son was in no way, not even an inkling, considered in any inferior status to a son born in an ordinary means. In fact, often received more affection and more honor when they were the adoptive sons. So Paul is gearing up this kind of image for us that we would experience it in such a way that, that, that God confers on this on every believer the right and privilege of being adoptive, adopted children of the living God. This is an amazing truth, an amazing reality. And we'll talk more about how it has us cry out to him in it. But there's one other thing I want you to understand about this reality of the spirits that exist, and that's in 14. For all 
who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And this spirit would be a capital S spirit, rightly translated. And, and the word led here is a little bit weak in translation. Uh, There's some places where this word is actually kind of aggressive, actually. So it's more like pulled along or guided significantly, moved along. And so becoming a child of God is actually the act of the Spirit to come and bring forth this experience of our being sons of God, daughters of God. It's him moving in us that we would receive that. And that's not true of everybody. Remember, in Romans, there's these stark realities that happen. And, and, and Adam all die, but in the second Adam, we can have life. There's, there's two ways to get to ways, metaphors, in which the Bible, and in Romans in particular, talks about moving from being people of enmity against God, remember, at odds with God, to becoming children of God. And that is either by adoption or new birth. It's a whole new way of being in the world. Those are the two metaphors he uses. So not everybody is a child of God in that sense. But you come to Christ, and in so doing, experience the sonship from the Father. And that is how you become a child of God. We can talk about more of the mechanics on that in a little bit as well. Henry Nouwen, in his amazing book, Return of the Prodigal, for most of my life I've struggled to find God, to know God, to love God. I've tried hard to follow the guidelines of the spiritual life, to pray always, work for others, read the scriptures, and uh, avoid the many temptations I have. I've tried to do this even when I experience despair. And now I wonder whether I've sufficiently realized that during all this time, God was finding me, led by the Spirit of God, to know me and to love me. It's not, how do I find God, but how has he found me? How am I to know God, but how is he making himself known to me? How am I to love God and know how do I experience the love he has for me? He then refers to Luke 15 and says, God is looking at me from the distance, and he girds up his outer garment and runs to me. This is what that spirit is the Spirit of God, and we are led, guided, pulled along by the Spirit of God to be known as sons of God. Now, all this is an empowering, a cry that comes from us, like I got the kids to try to do, um, a cry that comes from our voices that says, Abba, Father. And there has been a ton written in the last 60 years about the phrase, Abba, Father. And it is a beautiful thing, but the, the thing I want you to realize is, is that it's a cry. That it's this personal kind of uh, loud crying out of God. It's a yawp. It's a, it's a groaning forth. Again, I've been reading a lot about father issues, and um, somehow, somehow uh, it keeps going to like rock stars. So here's Bruce Springsteen. The past, though, is anything but the past. He says, all of my music, because of my parents' struggles, my relationship with my father, it's all calling out, Daddy! (laughs) It's the thing that eats at me always. Those wounds stay with you. And you turn them into language and purpose. He says, the musician T-Bone Burnett said that rock and roll is all about Daddy! It's one embarrassing scream 
of daddy. My heart broke when the, scr- the cry for daddy has to be embarrassing. It's actually something that we long to cry out. It's not the way it's supposed to be, embarrassing. Daddy isn't to embarrass you. If the Spirit is prompting you to cry it out, it is beautiful and right to call it out. It's exactly right. Now this phrase, uh, Abba, Father, and the crying out of Abba, Father, is really interesting. First, you've got to realize that it's both Aramaic or Jewish and Greek at the same time. Don't ever forget that one of the main purposes of Paul's letter is to actually, for people to experience the unity that Jesus has accomplished between Jew and Gentile. The very phrase of the first part of the book is the, the gospel. I'm not afraid of the gospel, first for the Jew and then the Greek, right? So he's trying to get these guys together. And so he uses two terms from two different places. It would be like saying Papa Vater if it was a German-Spanish speaking church or something like that. It's a really beautiful thing that's out here. That didn't really fly. That wasn't, I thought that was funnier. It was funnier when I wrote it down. It wasn't. Dang it. When some of you lose some. Um, now, people have made up that it's a, made that out that it's possibly a, a small child's cry, uh, even almost disrespectful. That's too much to be made of it. Uh, some have continued that it's um, that um, that that nobody in Israel ever used that, and this was uh, a, a level of intimacy and connection. Uh, that's probably overstating it. Um, but what you need to do is say, hey, this is a deeply familial statement. Amanda calls her father daddy. I call mine dad. I find lots of people calling their fathers papa these days. If I called my father papa, that wouldn't sound intimate at all. That would sound funny for us. If I called him daddy, that wouldn't sound intimate at all. I need to call my dad dad, right? Because that's the closest and the connection. So the point isn't to get the translation right. The point is that, that you get an understanding of, what, of the familial connection that you have, both as, uh, in a way that is like well, the way Jesus talked to his dad. Anybody see Parent Trap? Yeah, thank you, thank you. Lindsay Lohan or the whatever, 1960s? Both of them? Okay, okay, so there's this, if you know the story, identical twins separated at birth by their parents, divorce, early, early on, they get back together, they actually end up being together at the same summer camp. Then they realize they're twin sisters, um, uh, and so they, hatch this plot to go and switch. They do all this training to make sure they don't mess up and have all their dates right, all their, uh, everybody that, you know, they do all this stuff to make it happen, and so they go and they hang, they pretend to be the other one as they do. And when Annie is pretending to be Hallie, she is getting off the plane, this is in the Lohan version, when Lohan was young and not Lohan, um, and she says, because she's actually British but now pretending to be an American, Oh, gosh, it's him. In the first scene, she sees her dad, and she runs to embrace him, and she says, Dad, finally! She starts telling him everything that's happening. You know, she says, I feel like I'm practically a new person. She can't stop staring at him. Her dad seems puzzled. He's like, did I cut myself shaving or whatever? He says, no, it's just seeing you for the first time. I mean, you know, in a long time. And they're driving towards home, and Annie is, like, discussing the camp, ending almost all her sentences with the word dad. He asks her, why do you keep calling me dad at the end of every sentence? And he says, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was doing it, dad. Sorry, dad. Um, Do you want to know why I'm saying it, dad? The truth, there's a little bit of tension. He says, 
because you missed your old man so much, right? Exactly, she says. It's because in my whole life, I mean, in eight weeks, I've never been able to say the word dad. Never, not once. And if you ask me, and a dad is an irreplaceable person for a girl's life. Think about it. There's a whole day devoted to fathers. Just imagine never being able to say hi, dad, or what's up, dad, or catch you later, dad. I mean, a baby's first words are dad, dad, aren't they? He stops and he says, let me, let me see if I get this. You missed being able to call me dad? Yeah, I really have, dad. You can call him dad, or daddy, or pops, or papa, or your old man. <laughs> the point is the familial. You have received a spirit of adoption, and that frees you to cry out in the power of that spirit on a spontaneous outburst of Abba, Father. The spirit doesn't just confer on us a status, but a posture of the heart, an inner calm of knowing that we truly are God's dearly beloved children. And you experience the same kind of intimacy that the son spirit experiences with the father. Do you know the only time that is recorded that Jesus says, Abba, Father, as a phrase? Do you know when that is? It's at the Garden of Gethsemane. He calls him Father every time, but calls him Abba, Father, when you most need a dad. When you most need to experience the protection, the care. Sweating blood, dreading what was before him, he called out in his family term, and he said, Dad, I need you. And there is only one application here. The spirit in you lives in you, and it emboldens you to cry out to the king of the universe, to God of gods and Lord of lords, not God of God and Lord of lords alone, but Dad, Abba, Father. No matter how dark your days, no matter how weak you feel, you can cry out to him, Abba, Father, Dad, I need you. Verse 16 and 17 kind of sum up the rest. And I want to talk to you about the withs here in 16 and 17. A little vocab lesson for you really quickly. Those withs like bear witness with or fellow heirs with or uh, yeah, heirs with or suffer with or glorified with. All those withs are actually not withs. They're, they're, they're prefixes to the words that are before them. You've, you've actually seen that word, heirs with, fellow heirs with, as co-heirs with Christ. All of them are co-something. So you are co-witnesses or co-witness bearing. You're co-heirs. You're co-suffering and co-glorifying. It just stands out a little bit more when I put it in green or stands out a little bit more uh, in, the, in the original language. Um, but you get it in English too. There's a co-mingling, a unitedness, a cooperation that is happening, right? Then we are in him. This is the, the doctrine of, the, of our union with Christ. We are connected and for those who are his are in him. So let's talk about this co-witness and co-heirs. Just to make sure you understand the spirit co-witnesses or bears witness like in a courtroom or in a testimony and our spirit joins with that spirit, and we co-witness together that the living God reminds us that, and all of heaven and earth, and including ourselves, that we are children of God. What an amazing work of the spirit to do, to join ours, and then we testify together, our spirits testify together that this is true of us. 
And that, not just that it's true of us that we are children of God, that we are his, that, 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 his, that we are his, not only, but everything of his is ours. I need you to think about that first. Are you kidding me? The very kingdom of God is ours to be inherited? The very God himself. Think about what that inheritance was. If I told you, I have $10 million for you, and I'll give it to you in two years. How would that adjust your life? How would you orient differently? What freedom would you have with that guarantee set before you? What decisions you would make? And what I'm telling you is that you have all that you need to live faithfully for our day. Because this is true of you. Because it's more than 10 million. It's eternal life and all the glory that is Jesus's, that comes to Jesus. There's a witness bearing that we are co-heirs with Christ. I remember when Amanda's, uh, I dated Amanda for a long time, even when the kids were, her brothers were little, maybe nine and 10 or 10 and 11 or something like that, and they'd say, Dad, what if we won $10 million? Or $2 million, I think it was. I think the lottery back then was like, what if we won $2 million or whatever it is? And he was like, well, they were like, you wouldn't have to worry about money ever. He goes, I worry about money as much as I do now. Because Jesus has got everything I need right now. And what if I need two million? What if I need three million? What am I going to do then? I've got everything I need right now. If I need two million dollars, one million dollars ain't going to help. Co-witness, co-heirs. But also this means that we belong If the Spirit is testifying to us that we are children of God, and you may not experience this, but I'm, my guess is that you do, the Spirit's testifying that we're children of God, but my inner voice sometimes calls me everything but a child of God. My shame, my doubt, my track record, my body, my fear, my failures, my despair, my rebellion, some days those seem so overpowering to me. But the truth is that for you and for me who are in Christ, the truest inner voice that I have is actually testifying that I belong and co-testifying with my spirit that I am where I am supposed to be and I am who I am called to be a child of God. One of the hardest things for me to remember is that you don't stop being a child of God because sometimes you're a problem child. But you don't. And sometimes we're all a problem child. But you don't stop being a child of God. And for those of you who just have trouble believing that God would love you like that, that he would really adopt you, uh, please know that that is 100% normal. Every adoptive child I know, including my own father, has had doubts, has struggled with coming to grips with their identity in the adoptive family. That the belonging and then the inheritance is theirs. It is perfectly normal and right and good. I've talked to several of you about this, and parents and children, like my own dad, adopted son, and it's, it's hard for parents too because there's so much love and so much desire to please believe, please believe, please hold. It's so true of you. You belong fully, all of that stuff. But it's hard for us to receive that. 
as adoptive children, even as adoptive children in, in, in kind of real life. This is about as real life as you can get for us too. So be patient with yourselves. We all have daddy issues, even when they're heavenly daddy issues. We're all trying to work through and trust. And you guys can teach us, some of you who've been adopted, or people like my dad or others, or work through adoption or foster care, all that. You guys can teach us and help us. You're, you can be our, the leaders of us to show us how to be patient and kind with ourselves in it. It never, ever changes that you're loved and that you belong. There's one other caveat in this passage. Because the co doesn't include the co-witness, just the co-witness and the the co-heirs, but also co-suffering and co-glory. It says, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. I'm not going to talk a lot about that. We're coming to 12. We're talking about living as spiritual sacrifices in other places we will. You, have you ever received an inheritance, anybody? If you've received an inheritance, you know what they tell you to do? They tell you to live like you never received an inheritance, right? Because you start getting a little bit past the punk coverage on that stuff, and you start burning it. That's completely opposite here. This inheritance actually drives us to live in a more beautiful way. It actually, actually has us acting like there's a family resemblance between the Father, and the sons, and us. That's where the provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified. It's taking on the family resemblance, suffering, and glorification. I actually saw this on Facebook yesterday. For those of you who are under 25, Facebook is where old people go to feel hip. I thought that was going to be funnier too. I actually saw the first part of this story Friday night. It's homecoming weekend at my kid's school, and at halftime, the homecoming court's going out, and proud dads accompanying their beaming daughters dressed to the nines. Then toward the end, I recognized another pairing, and they were friends of my children, so I knew their story. They are brother and sister. As they lost their dad in 2011, the young man, the younger brother, walked, accompanied his sister across the field that night. And we knew their story and were just thought it was beautiful. But we found out later on Facebook the next day, and barely any of us knew it at the moment. He was not just taking his dad's place. He was literally wearing his father's shoes and accompanying his sister in the role and in the resemblance of his father. It was, we wasn't a dry eye in the house yesterday. He wore his dad's dress shoes to support his sister and honor his father. The suffering we're going to talk about, the, 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 the glorification is in a resemblance of the father that is ours. We end up being like him. There's something so right about that in our passage today. It's taking on the resemblance and the character of the Trinity, taking on the posture of a su- suffering and awaiting glory. It's not just representing. It's actually, it's more than representing because it's co. So he's actually doing it with us, alongside of us. Our Heavenly Father cannot be tragically ripped away from our lives. In fact, our Heavenly Brother was tragically ripped away from Him. And Jesus tasted a death so that this would not be. And by the Spirit, His Father, and now our Father, raised Him from the dead, guaranteed that He could never be anything else but our brother. And making us His Father's children. 
co-witness to our adoption, co-heirs of new life, co-sufferers for the sake, all to be co-glorified in his name. There's only one place in all of Scripture that Jesus does not call God either Father or Abba. There's one place. And it's on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that Jesus then takes on death, separates from the Father that love in that perfect unity so that we might become sons and daughters of the living God. My professor stopped, the gruff man that he is. He came around from the lectern. He took off his glasses and he began to weep. And he couldn't actually get all the words out at first because he said, this is precisely right to this woman who just said, how can you compare this? How can you do this? He went on to tell about how he needed a re- orientation to what a father was. He says, I ran away when I was 14 years old because my dad tried to light my bed on fire while I was in it. He looks at her and goes, we all desperately need a heavenly father to redeem our fathers. Even folks with good fathers need a renewed and redeemed vision of a heavenly father. This man sitting there literally a trained killer before his conversion, now dealing patiently, tenderly, like a father that he nor she ever had, declaring, Abba, Father, is available to those who had bend their knee. The spirit of adoption alive in him, calling out to her for the same. Let's pray.